Hello and welcome to the Business Line podcast. I am Nivedita Varadarajan. On the 30th of May 2019, Narendra Modi took the oath of office to become the Prime Minister of India for the second time. The government's tenure has been marked with many ups and downs. For me, while the government has performed well in regards to its spending on infrastructure, its performance related to some reforms have been rather muted. In this episode, I talk to Karan Bashan, a New York-based economist, and we dissect the legacy and the impact of the Modi government's economic policies. Listen in. Thank you, Karan, so much for joining us today. Yeah, the pleasure is entirely mine. Okay, so let's start with the biggest success for the Modi government. That is the implementation of the welfare scheme so in an article i read of yours you talk about the difference between a good a subsidy program which is designed well and a badly designed subsidy program so is it fair to say that the modi government is successful in implementing its welfare schemes because it's designed well well i mean i would say that more than the design it's it's about the implementation where uh, the present regime has done a lot better than previous regimes of course technology has played a key role in improving the efficiency of welfare delivery you know now we have the aadhar everyone has bank account so it's feasible to transfer funds directly earlier if you go back say you know about 9 years to 2013 and so on and so forth there was a lot of discussion regarding moving away from in kind transfers to cash transfers and the idea was opposed primarily because a lot of people didn't have bank accounts so the dbt which was uh, you know being considered at that time was not feasible what this government did which was a phenomenal achievement in its own right was the financial inclusion through creation of jandhan accounts and it is through those accounts when linked with india's unique identity card the aadhar which is a digital identity they were able to ensure that everyone who should receive the benefits of a welfare program do receive it in a timely manner directly in their bank account without any leakages so the thing that the modi government did differently is to implement well so how did they go about implementing it differently from the previous governments so i mean one of the biggest reasons why the implementation has improved substantially uh, mm-hmm. is of course because you know they leveraged the role that you know technology can play into plugging leakages and, and ensuring an effective delivery mechanism take for instance you know the jam trinity the dbt which was initially launched for a few schemes by the modi government and this was of course immediately after the creation of jandhan accounts and once they realized that okay this system is working well it was subsequently expanded to cover 400 more schemes and as of today it remains as one of the largest direct cash transfer program of its kind you know when you talk about dbt as a whole and of course it has different schemes and welfare measures under it so you have the pm kisan samman nidhi yojana and then you have scholarships being given through it you know you you have pensions being given through it and so on and so forth what is particularly fascinating is that you know the jam trinity has three aspects jandhan aadhar and mobile and uh, each one of those were developed in complete isolation at the time when they were being implemented but it was only later in 2014 15 when this new government came in that 
it gave a big push to of course jandan accounts and then tried to link these aspects to create a more unified welfare stack so to say uh, and i think just like the india stack that that has developed india is well on its part to create the first ever known welfare stack which would be a mechanism of you know targeted delivery of welfare measures from government directly to citizens spoke a little bit about how successful jandan aadhar and mobile are for the success of this government these schemes were not originally intended to be together right so how did they come together can you tell us a little about that and just because they came together doesn't mean they would have been so successful in implementation right so there must be some little bit of a hack over there right for instance you know india has been trying to achieve financial inclusion since 1970s uh, by creation of bank accounts and so on and so forth in fact one of the reasons why banks were initially nationalized was to democratize the access to you know modern financial system hmm. uh, but unfortunately the pace of financial inclusion always lagged you know there were new branches that were being created but even then we weren't able to reach the rural poor uh, you know even the urban poor in some cases did not have bank accounts and once the government decided that it has to open bank accounts the first decision that they took was that these can be a zero balance bank account and that you know if you open these bank accounts there were certain additional benefits in the form of an opt in pension scheme you know an opt in insurance scheme uh, accidental insurance and so on and so forth so they incentivized people to open these bank accounts and they created a target to finish you know the objective of financial inclusion within a stipulated time frame and what happened in the process was that banks had to actually go across districts you know across different villages uh, to houses of people and you know get them to open their bank accounts now because india already did have aadhar that made the onboarding process quite streamlined even though aadhar was not intended for this purpose so by the time you know you had these bank accounts open you also had a digital identity which was unique to every indian and you had a bank account for uh, each household in the country so you know the implementation in a time bound manner and setting well defined targets while also keeping in mind the need to incentivize people to open these accounts i think each three of these pillars were crucial to having the kind of success in the domain of financial inclusion which has eluded successive governments over the last several decades let to move on to the next topic reforms if you look at it the first 5 years of modi tenure government was able to push a lot more reforms be the gst or it got ibc in place it got the upi etc but the second modi government right they haven't been as successful in it so be the demonetization the labor laws came up but they have not been notified the farm laws have been repealed privatization isn't happening what is the difference between modi 1 and modi 2 why yes. is it not going that well so i guess even in modi 1 you did have a reversal of land acquisition bill yeah uh, you know which, which more was... successes than lagging for modi yeah i mean but that was also an important reform that unfortunately couldn't go through yeah uh, but despite that they were able to push through a lot of reforms see one of the difference between post 2014 government and the you know governments that that have happened in the past is that 
uh, this government believes genuinely believes in the importance of reforms and unlike of course you know the predecessor governments and a lot of the reforms in the past were either done due to compulsion or done simply on on you know fdi limits etc mm. those are very important reforms i think the only exception is in the 1980s where you did have some tweaking of reforms and i think the process of reforms actually started around that time and then it of course culminated in the big bang 91 reforms with the backdrop of uh, mm. the crisis i think the difference between 2014 to 19 and then post 2019 has to be the pandemic mm. uh, you see a large shock like that and and when you lose two key years in a five year term that restricts the ability to use your political capital to push through reforms that might not be very palpable so mm. what we see in the second term is that a lot of the thinking is now on use of policy in particular fiscal resources that are well targeted so you see you know a lot of push for the pli scheme mm. which is you know a, a way to kind of incentivize companies to set up manufacturing in india and at the core of the pli idea is that look you know we are having trouble implementing crucial reforms be that in land or labor and we realize that firms are not going to have the competitive advantage that they should in the absence of these reforms but we still want manufacturing to come in so whatever is the productivity that you lose because of the lack of these reforms we are going to give you fiscal resources to make up for it but you come and set up plants here so i think that's the kind of you know a uh, second best policy choice that the government has made and instead of doing deep structural reforms they are focusing a lot more on procedural reforms you know things that are easy to notice things that that are easy to implement so to say i might add here that uh, you know if you look at the pace or the journey of indian reforms you would realize that a lot of the reforms that are now pending are actually pending at the state level and that makes the situation a bit even tricky because going forward you might not have so many big bang reforms that are left to be undertaken to begin with i like to briefly talk about two aspects demonetization and the covid pandemic firstly do you think demonetization is a misstep because idea of demonetization is to get out all the black money in the ecosystem in the market do you think that the government achieved it you know i haven't come across measures or estimates of amount of black money that that are circulating pre and post demonetization so you know i wouldn't be able to make a value judgment on that it was an experiment that was conducted it definitely had a short term costs that were imposed on the system those costs were well acknowledged by many people and it did have some benefits in the form of digitization which were more long term in nature hmm. now the real question really is that a did the benefits outweigh the costs and of course it's too soon a time to to be able to answer that question even after you know so many years post demonetization and the second is that would you recommend this as a strategy to other countries i think the answer to the latter is definitely no hmm. so, so doesn't that mean that the answer to the first question is that the cost didn't outweigh the benefits then i mean as i said it it's difficult to get a value judgment on that just yet because the costs were short lived and they were in the short run i know many people believe that the costs are still playing out but there is no mm. empirical evidence to support that hypothesis 
so the costs were sharp, but they were in the first two quarters post demonetization, and then mm -hmm. they dissipated again. You know, uh, they dissipated away. What was a real issue, which makes you know assessment of demonetization very hard, is the fact that immediately post demonetization there was aggressive monetary tightening that led to the collapse of uh, non banking financial corporations such as DHFL and and ILNFS. Yeah. So it's you know essentially there was a lot of stuff that was happening around that time. GST was also being implemented, so you don't know what kind of interaction was taking place in the economy and how the economy was adjusting and what was the causal effect of each of these interventions on that adjustment process. So when something is that complicated, was it the right move at that time then in 2016? I guess ex ante the, the thinking was that this would of course, you know, impose a heavy cost on society. Mm. Hmm. collectively for holding black money and that would dissuade people from evading taxes and immediately post demonetization you know you got a big fill up in, in the form of tax compliance and then of course digitization also improved which further made it difficult for people to hide their transactions or, or you know their income and as a consequence that to report it to the tax authorities so to that effect I think it did manage to create a dent somewhere. Now, mm -hmm. how sustainable is that? That's something that, you know, again, we'll have to wait and watch. Okay, so what are the parameters that we should be waiting out for? I would like to see if the tax compliance business, uh, it continues to play out over the next couple of years. And, and I would also like to see how far beneath we are in terms of cash to GDP ratio. And I know people say that it's back to the pre-COVID levels. Yeah. But what we are interested in is that it would be back to the pre-demonetization levels eventually. That's how, you know, economy yeah. functions. Yeah. What, what is interesting is that what would be the counterfactual in the absence of demonetization? Hmm. So take the growth rate in the cash to GDP ratio prior to demonetization and you project it forward and then you see how far the actual is from the counterfactual. So hmm. I think these two metrics would really help us have a better understanding of what was the more long-term effect of demonetization on the Indian economy. So I'll also want to talk to you about the government's uh, COVID action, at least on the developed world, was giving out cash to its citizens. In the Indian government took a markedly different approach. We had a scheme uh, where the government gave food to the people who couldn't afford it. But there was a lot of criticism at that time, right? Saying that you should be giving money to the hands of the people and that will help them tide over the crisis. What's your take on how the government handled the COVID-19 crisis economically? I think a cross-country comparison of inflation rates today and during the pandemic that itself outlines why you know cash transfers were, was not a very good idea at that time. You see... Even when lockdowns were imposed, essentially you were closing down markets. So even if you give people cash, what would they spend on? Hmm. Except for durable goods, you know, most services were shut. Mm -hmm. And even with durable goods, right production was shut. So if you would have given out cash at that time, you would invariably end up overheating your economy, which mm -hmm. would lead to build up of inflationary impulses. 
sorry i would like to intervene here to just say that if i had cash at that time and if i had to pay my rent i would have still paid that right so it's not like they just sat on the money for like two years and then they started to spend it right but rent uh, rent share in consumption basket in india is, is much lower than in the west yeah also what you see in the west is that around that time rents also got adjusted almost instantaneously that didn't happen in india but that's again because it's a very small relatively small share of consumption basket in india than it is in in mm. the west so so you're right i mean cash would have benefited people for paying rent etc but you know it wouldn't for predominantly people without savings you know people who are genuinely poor genuinely distressed migrant workers etc their share of consumption of rent is much lower so even if you give them cash ultimately they, their marginal propensity to consume is quite high they would have wanted to go out and spend the money but they can't spend it because markets are shut so so you you don't have that kind of a situation wherein you can simultaneously do a fiscal stimulus while restricting economic activity in close to 65 to 70% of your overall economy uh, so do you think the government handled the uh, covid crisis well economically yes i would say that at least as far as the handling of the covid crisis is concerned they did a decent job where i would slightly disagree with is that i believe that some of the fiscal support was in place for a bit longer than it should have i think the pmgkay program could have been readjusted about 3 to 4 months prior to what they did and i think that the post uh, russia ukraine conflict monetary tightening was a bit too aggressive and that mm-hmm. led to a very sharp switch in the monetary policy regime from negative real rates to positive real rates in a span of a year ha so but- technically though but RBI government has no technical control over the RBI so they can't you know yeah but uh, you know uh, you're right RBI is independent but yeah. even with its independence during the pandemic what we saw is exceptional monetary fiscal coordination so you saw monetary authority also come in and cut interest rates and provide liquidity support to the economy just as the government was providing fiscal resources and that that coordination in itself you know worked brilliantly to ensure that we don't overheat the economy immediately after the lockdown restrictions were lifted okay so i like to talk a little bit about the employment problem that india faces india has been having employment problem for a while now even before the pandemic even before the nda in fact so even when the growth rate was high unemployment was also very high so this means that both the up and nda have not yet found the magic sauce the magic formula if you will to uh, to pull millions out of poverty which both governments did credit to them but also provide enough jobs to the people what's your take on it no this is a big problem and uh, you know there's no easy solution for this because at at its core it's not that there aren't jobs jobs per se you know but it's an issue of skills and because people don't have the skills even if there is capacity to absorb excess workforce there is reluctance to recruit and then train on the job 
because it just becomes a very costly affair so so at its heart you know the biggest issue seems to be that we have way too many college graduates in fact we are the largest english speaking college graduates in the world at the moment but skill set or or rather the skill level that is needed to make the most of this workforce is unfortunately not there and in today's world you know where you see a lot of automation happening a lot of work on ai etc which you know can replace labor you are struggling to find the right skilled worker you would eventually end up looking for some of these high capital intensive uh, technologies for production thereby you know reducing the need for workforce so this is a challenge which is going to get even more challenging going forward and um, this is an issue where you need both the central and the state government to work extensively to address it uh, some states have a really good record when it comes to unemployment right like you look at the peninsular states they have a much lower unemployment rate than the hinterland states so so i think long term uh having more and more economic activity in the hinterland would lead to a much more balanced growth path and reduce the unemployment stress from the economy but even with that you know there is no substitute to upskilling and reskilling and and you know imparting knowledge mm-hmm. across your workforce um and somehow over there most indian states haven't paid much attention skills is a both center and a state problem but the modi government has this thing called skills india where they supposed to train a huge number of people to meet the industry requirements they haven't done so yet and admittedly there'll be a lot of problem in doing this so how do we address this problem of education even china when we became world's largest population had a jab saying that number doesn't matter quality matters right so how do we address this problem in actuality when it's a both state and a center subject so you know uh, this of course has to be a larger fiscal uh, bargain between center and around you know how best to deal with this problem and once you know once there is a resolution to that problem i'm sure that states would figure out innovative ways into doing things because some states have been successful there's also some demand side problems here you see in india typically if you ask a middle class family about what kind of jobs what should people study right it's it's the standard engineer or doctor or upsc or you know so basically they are like these well defined professions that people target and then they get education to get into those professions and that kind of a environment itself is not very conducive for building up capacity of vocational training which is equally viable as a career path and can lead to decent you know economic opportunities so on one side while there is a supply problem there is also a demand problem that has to be addressed and then there is this other issue of you know too much of workforce being concentrated in low productivity agricultural work which has to be shifted to the industrial areas or industrial sector of the economy which is another challenge altogether because there you need both push and pull factors so so basically you know if you look at it from that angle uh, simply supply interventions you know adding more number of seats and you know building more vocational institutes and so on and so forth 
are not going to be sufficient to address this challenge until and unless there is more demand for these kind of you know vocational courses and such career paths so the modi government is trying to push the demand for uh, vocational training and for jobs which require hands if you will they are promoting the manufacturing sector like most governments but the push is a little bit more i feel so for one they have the pli scheme they have the atmanirbhar scheme the make in india scheme and they are also spending a lot on infrastructure because they hope that if the uh, if up bihar and uh, madhya pradesh and all of them have good infrastructure people will go there and uh, build factories so even then will these three be enough to address the employment problem so i mean of course these will make situation better hmm. from today right because you do need industry to come into the hinterland and you do need to incentivize production and you also need to kind of integrate your economic policy with your strategic autonomy uh, you can't be too dependent on a country which is a known adversary and yeah. you have frequent border clashes with so from that you know multidimensional kind of perspective or multidisciplinary perspective you know it's, it's a very important policy intervention in its own right and of course it is desired even from a welfare kind of standpoint mm-hmm. while this will work in some areas it might not in some others and that's what is very interesting about the indian government per se that it adopts an iterative approach so it tries things and if they don't work it tries things differently and if they don't work it kind of goes back and tries things differently and they keep on trying till the time they crack it and mm-hmm. as long as they keep doing it i'm sure that there will be multiple iterations you see a one size fits all policy will will be too difficult to work in a country as diverse and in an economy as diverse as india mm-hmm. so i think a lot of that learning process is is underway even with the pli scheme we see a lot of changes that are sector specific Mm. from time to time so i think that this agile policy making with an iterative approach would of course make the situation better off say 5 years and 10 years from now but it is absolutely imperative that a lot of the industrial activity comes to the hinterland as well mm-hmm. so that overall the growth process is quite balanced the share of manufacturing in this economy will only become better if there demand for it for products in india and abroad and for manufacturing to grow you need the requisite skills in people right so are we doing enough to get consumption levels higher so two things i i suspect the share of manufacturing in india gdp might not be a good metric to see or evaluate manufacturing performance given that services typically have a higher value added so they would always kind of you know outshine even when we have more manufacturing activity taking place but with that caveat there i think we have to also realize that with 400 million odd people uh, still you know being some way or the other related to the primary sector essentially boosting consumption would require moving some of these people out from the domestic consumption standpoint and even with the domestic consumption you know uh, as you go into more and more sophisticated manufactured products the market for it within india keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller so it's no surprise then that a lot of the focus is on exports at the moment and then once you do get that process going through growth and through successive compounding effect you know your domestic demand would also catch up and then you'll 
push more and more people towards middle class and upper middle class over the next decade and then then the decade after and so and so forth so the journey from a per capita income of you know close to $3000 to $5000 itself would change the indian economy in an enormous way and then from that when we go to the $10000 per capita economy the consumption pattern the the you know domestic consumption its robustness etc would be very different so i think realistically speaking where we are today there is no alternative to tapping into exports to be able to achieve the kind of manufacturing scale needed to be competitive relative to say a country like china also to me it feels like if the indian government is going to shy away from from free trade agreements like we were almost going to sign recp and in the last minute we were like no this is not for us and some of our ftas we've been talking about it for decades like with the eu so even then until unless we are not competitive for the external market this, the manufacturing situation might not improve here right but the rcep is a different issue altogether because there you have a country china which is known to have uh, yeah yeah they have an unfair advantage over everything yeah. when it comes to manufacturing and, and and you know they've used their currency in violation of all sorts of rules yeah, so yeah. you would necessarily not want to be in an agreement with them so mm-hmm. i would have been more critical if they would have signed that agreement than them not signing it simply because you have to be in an agreement with people who respect the rules of the game mm-hmm. but the good thing is that they did sign a early harvest deal with uh, with australia Yeah. and with certain countries in the middle east so i'm optimistic that at some point in the next couple of years we will see those early harvest deals materialize into full fledged ftas and then something similar to happen with uk and even the eu of course there are a lot of contentious issues particularly regarding you know the primary sector and and as we have recently found out farm lobby is quite strong in india yeah uh, so so those are you know those are constraints to effective negotiation and 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 getting an agreement on but that's also you know partly i think it's not mentioned enough that that the farm lobby per se you know reversal of farm laws etc the negative impact on a potential growth yeah. because of that lobbying effort is going to be so costly for everyone else mm-hmm. and i think it's important that understanding seeps into very well so that in the future if there is a need for such a reform at least people are more aware and people are you know willing to accept it mm-hmm. as an important way of doing things in future so my final part of this podcast deals with uh, the bjp's economic ideology they are sometimes accused of being a pro capitalist government because they give tax breaks to the corporate class but they are also heavily invested in um, welfare scheme so they're not a socialist government in all of its sense or they're not a pro capitalist government either how would you classify the bjp side oh they're left of center yeah so sometimes it feels like that's the only difference between upa and the nda is that the nda implements the schemes better well i mean there are other differences as well like for instance even though they i would classify them as left of center but at least on growth they are a bit more pragmatic so i would say that upa is probably more left than left of center relative to the nda but you you have to realize that in india every political party is left of center 
no so, parties ever going to say i'm going to withdraw all welfare reforms they'll be out of power in a minute no it's not about you know removing welfare reforms it's also about taking important difficult decisions mm-hmm. uh, say for instance taxing the farmers mm. rich farmers at least which you that's, know at the end of the day is a state that's not going country. to happen yeah Ex- exactly so 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 you know typically we we don't have a very libertarian kind of political uh, class to begin with and i think it's also because of you know the experience that india had with east india company and then the choices we made post independence right so that that impulse for the state to do more is is very strong but having said that i think the corporate tax cut was driven more in pragmatism than willing to give any breaks because the large corporates anyway were paying 25% because of all the exemptions whereas the small and medium enterprises could not make uh, or avail those exemptions to begin with so having a flat rate sets the tax scale back to being a bit more egalitarian and so that it cannot be misused by large corporate houses to pay a lower tax and have a lower tax liability than you know your average small or medium business enterprise Okay thank you so much Karan for joining us today uh, I had a great time and thank you so much for having me